Hello and welcome to B-Side, where we revisit business world stories and tell a few of our own. After two months in lockdown, Philippine cities are slowly opening up to a new reality. Management consulting firm McKinsey & Company recently released a report that defined this new reality, this next normal, as a time when, quote, we will witness a dramatic restructuring of the economic and social order in which business and society have traditionally operated. In this episode, Christine Romano, managing partner of McKinsey Philippines, elaborates on this report and applies it to the Philippine context. She tells Business World reporter Janina Ibanez how the country's business leaders might navigate the COVID-19 crisis and find an economically and socially viable path to the next normal. We're here today with Christine Romano. She's the managing partner of McKinsey & Company's Philippine office. We're going to be talking about beyond coronavirus preparing for the new normal. So maybe just to start out, can you tell me about what is your expectations of what this new normal will look like? Let's talk about what does new normal mean? Because I think we're seeing is a lot of countries have taken actually the approach of doing some kind of pretty at scale quarantine measures, especially as people try to flatten the curve. And I think at McKinsey, when we say new normal. In fact, we refer to it as the next normal. What we actually mean is that time frame when the quarantine restrictions are lifted, but before a vaccine is found. I think from all of our conversations with various experts, the time horizon for actually getting a vaccine out is probably maybe 12, 18 months from now. Some people talk about six months, but it's not going to be like after we lift these quarantines, then we're going to go back to pre-COVID normal. And that's what we mean by next normal, which is even if we were allowed to leave our houses until a vaccine is found, the way we operate, the way businesses are run, the way we interact socially, what we do for entertainment is likely going to be different. And that's what we mean. So next normal to us in the next 12 to 18 months, what does that look like? Increasingly, we're seeing a couple of things. I think number one, we're seeing that this notion of digital and contactless will likely persist. As you can imagine, kind of even here in the Philippines, because we're not able to actually go out, the premium on getting goods then delivered to us or being able to transact digitally is actually accelerating. I mean, the trend has always been there, but in this next normal, it will be even faster and it will get accelerated even more. So that's one, which is the shift to digital. I think the second thing is also around the resilience of supply chains. I think in the past, there's been a big premium on finding economies of scale, getting the most efficient supply chain. And that usually means consolidating everything in one place because that's the best way to kind of get your costs lower. But I think what this next normal is finding is there's also a risk to that. There's a concentration risk because that country, typically, for example, in China, where all of your supply chain is, encounters a lockdown. I think we're now seeing the effects of that. So in this next normal, there will be a big question around the resilience of supply chains, not just the efficiency. And resilience to us really means two things. How can we have the flexibility to move supply chains around as needed, but also productivity because flexibility comes with a cost. So how do we balance that out with increasing productivity, whether that's through automation, whether that's through additional training for our people, how do we just maximize our productivity? I think that's the second one. The third one is actually also then going to be 
be a shift towards value consciousness. And what we mean by that is this is an unprecedented economic shock that the world has not seen since World War II. I think everyone is just experiencing quite a bit more anxiety about our economic prospects. So in the U.S., the numbers are now nearing 30 million, if not more, in terms of people that have tried to get unemployment insurance. In the Philippines, we've conducted consumer surveys as well. And what we're also seeing is actually, even within a span of two weeks, the optimism of Filipino consumers and employees have actually gone down quite significantly. And many more people are tightening their belts. They're saying more than half are saying it's been difficult to make ends meet. More than half are also worried about the security of their jobs. And so once we face consumers with this mindset, I think everyone's just going to be a lot more cost conscious. And therefore, in the next normal, companies that are able to cater to that and kind of really give value for money offerings will actually emerge probably as the ones that will capture a bigger share of the market. So I think these are just some of the things that will likely be true in the next normal. And of course, just one last thing will probably be this notion of social distancing will likely continue in some shape or form until a vaccine is found. So again, today we talked about kind of these big lockdowns that are happening countrywide or the Philippines, Luzon-wide. But I think more and more we'll start seeing social distancing become more localized to whether it becomes at the community level, within the workplace, within certain segments of society. So just the at-risk individuals. But I think some level of social distancing will likely continue until the vaccine is found. Right. So the behaviors and ideas that have shaped business before is going to change. Absolutely. So before we get to a new normal, it's important to assess what's happening right now. So with the spread of the virus and the necessary measures to contain it, what's your assessment of the economic impact of the Philippines so far and what sectors are most affected? Well, I guess first and foremost, we do want to say this is a humanitarian and health crisis. And I think governments have taken a stance of really trying to protect lives and save lives. I think the problem always with a pandemic, they always say is if you're successful at containing the pandemic, then people will look back and say, hey, it wasn't as bad. Not many lives were lost. So is it really worth it? But I think governments have actually taken a stance of that's the priority. Again, given that this is a first and foremost, really a health crisis, and we cannot emphasize how grave a consequence that is. But I think very quickly, as you pointed out, we also realize that it is impossible to separate the consequences as well on the economy. And I think a lot of the discussions we've been having is how do we, in fact, save both lives and livelihoods as we go through this crisis? In that sense, indeed, I think I mentioned earlier, the economic impact of this is unprecedented for a couple of reasons. I think number one is Unlike other economic crises in the past, this actually affects both the supply side as well as the demand side. So meaning on the supply side, people just can't produce the goods. And then on the demand side, as we talked about, consumers are now going to be more worried about their income. Therefore, they will likely be spending less. In the past, an economic crisis would just be focused on one or the other. But again, today, we're facing a shock on both sides. I think as well, what is different is kind of brought about by some of these restrictive measures as well on movement. So you talked about the economic impact. I think a lot of studies are now coming out. So even kind of the OECD, the IMF are saying a rough rule of thumb is for every month of lockdown is around 2% of GDP in terms of the economic cost. I think our government actually come up with an estimate that says from our traditional 6% growth, we're likely projecting 0%, potentially even a, up to a 1% contraction. Our estimates as well at McKinsey is if we are able to contain the virus quickly in terms of one scenario where we contain the virus, growth would be reduced to 2%. But if the virus actually resurges, that's another scenario, then the economy could actually contract by negative 2%. So really quite sizable implications on the economy. And I think one last thing I'll highlight is it's not a 
a linear function. It's not like month one, it's 2% of GDP. Month two, it's another 2%. And month three, it's another 2%. The challenge with very restrictive measures is it actually compounds on each other. So for example, in the first month of lockdown, I think a lot of companies said, hey, it's one month. We're therefore going to help our employees and tide them over and actually still pay and make our employees whole. So that's for the first month. But when we did our informal consultation with several private sector members, they said, look, we can do this for one month. But if this extends for a second month, we can't do it for everybody. We'll probably only be able to cover employees, maybe only around 30 to 50 percent of them. And therefore, now you've got people who might be at risk of unemployment. Also for SMEs, the longer this continues, the risk also of bankruptcy becomes very real. And therefore, if there are bankruptcies, that will then also affect the banks, because if they have loaned money, then they won't be able to pay the bank. And therefore, now you're suffering from non-performing loans in the banking system. So the longer a lockdown, it's not just the actual, I guess, cost of not being able to operate. There are also compounding effects to be mindful of. Right. So in terms of the Philippines, like what are the unique effects to the country, especially which sectors do you think are affected the most? So there will be similarities with a global perspective, but as you mentioned, there are unique features. So on the similarities, I think everyone, given all the restrictive border controls that are coming up, tourism will likely be hard hit across all countries. As well, I think there will be kind of a shift in supply chains and in manufacturing and the smooth operations of supply chains. So that will actually also be quite affected. Now, but what I think is unique to the Philippines, I would say will actually be three things. Number one is we actually have a high share of non-discretionary consumer spending, meaning we're a very consumption-driven economy compared to our neighbors. And out of what the consumers spend, half of it is actually basic supplies and staples, so food, things around the house, as opposed to luxury goods. And during this crisis, the ones that will be hardest hit are actually the luxury goods or the discretionary goods. So because we have less of that in our economy, we're actually, I guess, less affected by the volatility in the markets. So I think that's one. I think the second unique feature is actually our overseas Filipino workers. Now, historically, our OFW remittances have actually been quite resilient. So even during the global financial crisis, for example, total remittances actually still grew and there was actually widespread concern at that time of repatriations and so forth but it still grew but actually this time around we are um, seeing the possibility of a contraction of remittances in fact you know, for the first time in a very long while for the Philippines that's based off of uh, an analysis we did where we actually looked at during SARS in 2002-2003 total remittances actually grew you could say hey we're actually resilient but when we actually isolated just the top countries where SARS was uh, widespread so in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in China, remittances from those countries actually reduced by an average of about 18%, which does suggest that in a health crisis, there is actually an impact to our OFWs and our OFW remittances. And it actually took over a year before remittances came back to pre-health crisis levels during SARS. And so now, if the health crisis is worldwide, not just contained to a few countries, there is actually a risk that remittances will go down. And we're already seeing as well repatriation, particularly from our seafarers. Given that this is such a big contributor to our economy, there is again a further risk that our households will have less income and therefore demand and consumption could be suppressed further. And I think the third unique feature in the Philippines is also the BPOs. Initially, when we looked at this during the global financial crisis in 08-09, BPOs were actually quite resilient, both in India as well as in the Philippines. There was indeed a small dip, but actually we bounced back pretty quickly and 6 to 12 months later, our growth trajectory was back to pre-crisis levels. And that's a function after the crisis. Companies in the US and in Europe needed to look for cost savings. And so, you know, they actually ended up offshoring a lot more 
activities which boosted our growth. Here, what's unique about this crisis is, I guess, two things. No? Number one is we are hearing anecdotally risks of contracts being cancelled because our BPOs are unable to work from home. So just to give a sense, our BPO industry, about 40% are working from home and 10% are working on site. If you compare that in India, we did a survey in Indian BPOs. They said that up to 60 to 80% are actually able to work from home and the best companies, 90% are able to work from home. If you think about their customers, they will say, hey, in the Philippines, my capacity has been drastically reduced. And if that persists, some of the BPOs locally, the smaller ones are apparently having now discussions with their clients that if this continues and they can't work from home, that uh, they will need to shift these contracts outside. And so if we don't enable our BPOs to be able to work from home, there is a real risk of contracts being canceled or diverted to other countries. Once those contracts are gone, they're very hard to come back. The second risk as well that we're seeing is because, again, it's such a global crisis, there will be a push from various governments to onshore jobs. For now, we're hearing or we're seeing it's mostly manufacturing jobs that are being incentivized. But if the crisis deepens or worsens, that might lead to services kind of being onshore. And again, that, that will put us at risk. So that's something we're, we're closely watching because, again, especially for our BPO workers, which again has been an engine of growth, that could have significant impact as well on the Philippine economy. There have been discussions about what's going to happen with the outsourcing industry. There are people who are of the opinion that a lot of the smaller businesses in other countries that have not been outsourcing, who are now cutting costs, might be more interested in outsourcing. Is that something that McKinsey has been looking at? Again, that's also what we saw during the global financial crisis, which is because of the recession, there was more pressure on costs. And that's what happened then. I think, again, the unique thing about this time around will be because it's so global. As I mentioned, there might be pressure to actually onshore jobs as opposed to offshoring. And there is now a question not just of offshoring and reducing costs and getting efficiency gains, but also about resilience, because they won't just want to offshore to one country, given, again, the risk if that country is on lock down, then their operations will be disrupted. So there's now an additional consideration on resilience and not just cost. So I think the bounce back of the BPO industry might not be as, I guess, quick and might not be as resilient as it was during the global financial crisis. I do think this time around, the BPO sector could actually be at risk of slower growth and a potential contraction. So we'll return to the unique vulnerabilities and opportunities in Philippine business. But before we go back to that, McKinsey has a set of recommendations for responding and uh, reimagining what business is going to look like. So what's your assessment of the Philippines' current response to the pandemic? So we do kind of have this overall framework of how we think leaders should respond to the crisis. So it's actually five steps. First, you resolve the immediate challenges in your operations, and it's actually five R's. So first is resolve. The second R is resilience, which is addressing the near-term cash management challenges, broader resiliency issues on shutdowns. And the third step is return, which is as countries emerge from these quarantine restrictions, what is the plan of businesses and governments to get back to scale in operations quickly? And then the fourth step, as you mentioned, is kind of reimagining the next normal. Again, up until we find a vaccine, what could be some of these opportunities that you had mentioned? And then the last R is actually reform, which is particularly for governments. What are the reforms needed for sectors, for industries, for healthcare, so that we are prepared for the next pandemic, if and when it happens? So these are kind of our five 
ours, if you will, in terms of our framework on how to approach the pandemic. And I think many Philippine businesses, because we were one of the first developing countries that actually imposed a hard lockdown, many Filipino companies actually moved very quickly on the resolve step as well as the resilience step, really trying to figure out how to cope with the crisis, how to cope with operations, given restricted movements. And I think we're now at a stage where many companies are now actually planning for the return and particularly how to return to work safely. What are these protocols that they need to put in place to really protect their employees, to protect their customers, because these are going to be our first line of defense to avoid a research. Then I think once people kind of have uh, and businesses have you know, more confidence in that and in their ability to return to work safely, then I do think there is a room for both government and businesses to really reimagine and reform what's next. I think I mentioned earlier shift to value and so forth. And I think it's the companies that are able to get ahead of some of these trends that could emerge as winners in the next normal. This famous Winston Churchill saying around not wasting a good crisis, because it is. It's an opportunity to kind of reinvent the business because everyone's assumptions are currently being challenged. Okay, so you were speaking earlier about these particular vulnerabilities that are unique to the Philippines. So how can the Philippines address these vulnerabilities, whether that's in outsourcing or in remittances? So I think there's a sector vulnerability, but I will also mention two other vulnerabilities, which is we're seeing that the economic concentration of activities in Luzon, where the lockdown is, really has significant knock-on effects for the entire country, just because such a significant amount of our economic activity is concentrated here. And I think the other vulnerability as well that we're also seeing is, just like any other developing country, is the significant number of workers that we have that are on no work, no pay, and are therefore vulnerable to these shocks because, again, unlike developed countries, our social safety nets for such workers might not be as robust. This is not a unique Philippines thing. This is true for all developing countries. Given this, in terms of what to do, right, to ad- address some of this, particularly for OFWs, if there is repatriation, and risk of them coming back, then there is a question of how do we utilize that extra labor in the Philippines and divert them to other areas that might be growing. For example, this notion of shift to digital. We do think logistics and delivery will require more workers. So is there a way to divert manpower there? Similarly, services like sanitation. Again, in the new normal, there will be a premium for health, wellness, cleanliness. So can those jobs also be created so that we're diverting underutilized labor perhaps into sectors of society that will likely see a pickup in demand. Are there particular opportunities that the Philippines is seeing? I mentioned that there are opportunities in this crisis. I think we do want to reiterate, first and foremost, this is a health crisis. And I don't think any opportunities would anywhere come to close to compensating for the human and kind of economic toll that this crisis is putting in place. Given, I guess, the shortage of optimism at the moment, maybe it is encouraging to kind of look at these silver linings and opportunities. If I think of what can the Philippines do, I would say, number one, the fact that we're a high consumption economy, much of which is non-discretionary is actually good. That ensures our resilience. I mentioned digital and the shift to digital and accelerating that as well could be a good thing. Now there's discussions of accelerating, for example, the national ID to enable digital. There's talk of accelerating all of these regulations to enable digital transactions, which are actually good for the economy. Our neighbors actually in ASEAN, India have all really progressed on this front. And the Philippines is actually quite behind when it comes to things like digital payments, e-commerce. So it could be a good thing that we are accelerating toward digital. 
The other one that could be an opportunity is actually domestic tourism. So especially borders remain restrictive in the next 12 to 18 months. And really for our tourism sector, it will be about stimulating local demand for tourism. And I think the last silver lining or opportunity I'll highlight is, again, given the desire of global companies to have a more resilient supply chain that's not overly reliant on one country, I do think the Philippines can actually step up its game and say, hey, I want to be part of that supply chain of different manufacturing firms globally. We're well positioned from a geographic point of view. We actually do have skilled manpower. And actually compared to our neighbors, again, we actually have quite high productivity when it comes to manufacturing. So is there a way for us to capture that opportunity disproportionately as uh, manufacturing supply chains try to diversify away from China? What resources and what kind of plans will we need to be able to benefit from those, whether that's in uh, moving to that digital economy or attracting those manufacturing companies moving out from China? An interesting question that you pose in terms of resources and capabilities. I will say, I guess number one is we do actually have a good base of digital talent in the Philippines. But it is interesting that, again, I mentioned we're quite behind no, compared to our peers. So the penetration of digital payments, for example, is nearly half of what we're seeing in Indonesia. But we actually have the talent. And so how do we use talent base to just help accelerate that, I think, is number one. Number two, I mentioned we have a lower share of manufacturing in terms of our GDP. But actually, we also have pretty productive productive workers. We do have the skill set, you know, how we configure our manufacturing lines to be more productive. So that I think is also an underutilized asset and resource. The third one is a bit softer, you know, the spirit, I guess, of Bayanihan as well, and just this notion of sense of community. I think, for example, if you look at the U.S. where their social safety nets are very formal, here is unemployment insurance. I think in the Philippines, one asset that we have, a company is not just a company, especially for the MSMEs, it's also viewed as a community. In some cases, it's literally a family. And so I think there are those ties that can tide us over during difficult times. Already hearing, for example, of different MSMEs and companies saying, some owners are saying, look, we're all going to take a pay cut of 20 to 30% across the board, even the owners, and we're all going to share this pain together so that we can conserve cash and we can reduce costs in the coming months and we will emerge out of it stronger. So there is a sense of that that I am noticing that I think could also help us tide us through the crisis. So in terms of manufacturing, how well do you think the Philippines might be able to attract those businesses they are trying to diversify? Our productivity is actually very competitive. I think it's now really a question of how can we be deliberate about targeting specific sectors or subsectors of manufacturing. So is it automotive or is it other types of manufacturing or semiconductors, whatever it is. I think being very deliberate about it. And I think number two is then also mobilizing quickly, right? Uh, we have a short window where people are evaluating these supply chains. And so how do we mobilize against that quickly as a partnership between public and private sector? I think it will need to come with a combination of incentives so that we are indeed more competitive versus other countries, but also just very proactive outreach to some of these global companies that are currently reconsidering. So let's talk about what we can do moving forward. So what do you think are the reforms needed to help prevent future crises like this? 
I think that is on a lot of people's minds at the moment. And it is actually interesting because many people, for example, are hailing countries like Korea or Taiwan or Hong Kong as having had very good responses to the current pandemic. And in reality, a lot of that is because they really learned their lesson during SARS and MERS. And during those periods, they were able to actually see areas for improvement in their response. And so when this came along, they were more prepared than everyone else because they'd seen this before. And so I think there is as well, at least on the health side, a question as well on how do we mobilize more readily in the event of a next pandemic. Again, I'll use the example of South Korea, where actually one of their strategies was testing capacity. That was a big challenge for them that they encountered during MERS. And so their strategy actually this time around is to work with the private sector and get the private sector to very quickly ramp up capacity. In the same way here in the Philippines, is there a way for the public and the private sector to also collaborate and come up with a similar partnership? So that testing capacity, for example, as well as sector-specific policies are formulated in close partnership and coordination. So I think that's on the health side. And then on the economy side, we talked about earlier on the resilience of operations. I think there is room as well to ensure that our operations are flexible and that we find ways to really ramp up productivity so that when one area is hit, for example, there's a backup plan. Very practically, what this might mean is companies can start asking, hey, how do I have a supply chain that's not overly dependent on just Luzon, for example? Is there a way to have flexibility to also have uh, backup systems or centers or operations in other parts? And again, that just reduces the concentration risk in one area so that the next pandemic or another surge comes, then companies are not as hard hit. So in terms of this resilience that you're talking about, I'm sure a lot of businesses are wondering, what can we start doing right now? And what can governments start doing now? In terms of a checklist, right now, number one is what would be my protocols to enable my employees to get back to work safely? And how do I train them and give them a level of comfort that when they return to work, they will not be put at risk? So I think that's checklist number one. Then checklist number two would then be how do I ensure that my operations are geographically resilient so that if one area is down, another area can still keep operating. And that might mean, for example, split operations. That might mean ensuring that their business continuity plans and centers have a geographic lens to them and not just a people lens. Checklist number three is then also to start looking at how to reconfigure business processes and products to start catering to the next normal that we talked about. For example, if I look at my set of products, do I have an offering that will cater to my value-conscious consumer? If I look at how I deliver my services to my clients, am I able to do it digitally and contactless? Because that is likely something that people will start looking for. So I think those are the practical next steps that companies can start looking into. And that includes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Christine Romano, managing partner of McKinsey Philippines, talking with Business World reporter Janina Ibanez about how the COVID-19 pandemic is a unique crisis that affects both supply and demand. Businesses have a hard time producing goods and worried consumers are holding back on buying. To adapt to the next normal, companies must rethink their priorities. To quote the report by McKinsey, the pursuit of efficiency gives way to the requirement of resilience. This episode was recorded remotely on April 28. This is Samuel Marcelo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay sane.